0: Turn your Bibles to two different passages Luke 24 and Psalm 42, 43. They're really one psalm together, kind of falsely divided. Luke 24 and Psalm 42, 43. Luke 24, let's begin by looking at verse 21. After the crucifixion of Jesus, the disciples on the road to Emmaus say, but we were hoping that it was Jesus who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, it's the third day since these things have happened. Today, Advent means arrival, the arrival of the Christ child, the Sunday of hope, but, but we were hoping The words leap from the text as you read them. Two disciples on the road to Emmaus, but we were hoping. We utter those words too. When the outcome is not what we saw, when we are bewildered and beaten down, when the medical tests come back positive with bad news, but we were hoping. The original diagnosis was wrong. When our son or our daughter is placed in harm's way in the military, in the service, but we were hoping that he would be placed stateside. When someone walks out of your life and there's a broken relationship, someone unwilling to reconcile, unwilling to mend the fences, but we were, we were hoping, I was hoping You could all be forgiven. The disciples on the road to Emmaus were hoping that day too. Look at verse 13. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. Seven miles, about a two-hour walk from Jerusalem. And notice that very day, Now, back in verse 1 of chapter 24, you'll realize what day it is. It is the first day of the week. It is the day of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. It's still the day of resurrection. Everything that happens in Luke 24 happens on the day of the resurrection. And on this day, all sorts of strange things have been happening. The disciples are still clueless as to what has actually taken place. The tomb has been reported empty, but those tales were taken as old wives' tales. In the midst of the confusion of the crucifixion, the burial of the disturbed tomb, the two disciples who live in Emmaus, they hit the road on the day of the resurrection, going home. Their departure from the city... After the Sabbath has passed, the very first opportunity to leave as a Jew, hence that the community of the disciples is actually in danger of collapsing because of bitter disappointment, grief, and confusion. But we were hoping. Look at verse 14. And they were conversing with each other about all the things which had taken place. They were in conversation with each other about all the things they'd seen and experienced. If you were alive during 9-11, you know exactly where you are, where you were that day. Our worlds were shocked and rattled and changed. You did not have a single conversation on 9-11 that wasn't about those events, the smoke, the towers. You remember all those images seared in your mind on that awful, terrible day. The catastrophe, the uncertainty, the emptiness, the confusion. Our world was no longer safe. It seemed like no one was in control and no one knew what was going on. And churches gathered together and we prayed and we comforted and we discussed. And there was something that was just, well, it was so good to be together Our very bedrock at 9-11 had been broken. That's the way the disciples felt on this day, this Resurrection Sunday. They had been following Jesus. They had committed themselves to the idea that he was the Anointed One of Israel, that he was the Messiah. They had seen his wondrous miracles. They had heard about others that they had not even seen. And that horrid image of him crucified on the cross, it was catastrophic to them. And now, someone had stolen the body. How could you not know? How could you not talk about it if your Messiah, your master, has been crucified? Even his body, it seemed, had now been disrespected. Look at verse 15. And It came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And, they, and he said to them, what are those words that you were exchanging with one another as you were walking? And they stood still, looking sad. Verse 16, their eyes were seized. It is in the passive voice. The verb suggests it is a divine blindness. They cannot see Jesus for who he is. God has seized their eyes. Disciples actually saw the crucifixion of their hope. There they were on the road to Emmaus, going back disappointed and defeated and discouraged and depressed because of the death, the death of the Messiah. And a stranger approaches. What world does he live in? How can he not know what's happened in Jerusalem? Everybody, like 9 11, then. Back in Jerusalem, the Messiah, the crucifixion, everybody knew what was going on. How could he not know? When y'all were walking back there, Jesus said, and remember they can't recognize him, what were y'all chatting about? It sounded interesting. What's going on? What was the conversation? Verse 17, they stopped in their tracks, and you know that look of sadness. Every dream they ever had had dried up with their death. the Messiah. Verse 18, and one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Are you the only guy in the city who doesn't get it? What world are you living in? Do you have no idea? Are you serious? You have no idea? What's taking place? Could you imagine being in New York City on 9-11 and not knowing what happened? That would have been the equivalent of not knowing what's happened in Jerusalem these days. The unruly crowds had gathered and they had shouted to the top of their lungs, for everyone in the city could hear, crucify him, crucify him. The high priest had been involved, and Pilate had been involved, and the Roman army had been engaged in his crucifixion. Why, there had even been a parade through the city. What do you mean? What are you talking about? Can you imagine on 9 11 someone saying, Now I didn't get what happened today. Would you please? I didn't know there were any attacks. Did something significant happen today, and I missed it? A resident of New York. Can you imagine someone unaware? Cleopas seems to be saying, if you don't know what's going on, guy, you're the only one in all of Jerusalem who's missed it. No, Jesus says, verse 19, what's going on? Verse 20. Are you not aware of the things about Jesus and Nazarene, who's a prophet, mighty indeed and word in the sight of God and all the people? And how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him? Now, have you ever reflected on the oddity of this passage? Here is this disciple, Cleopas, on the Road to Emmaus, going home, and he's telling Jesus the story of Jesus. He's telling Jesus the story of Jesus. I'm glad he got it right. Jesus from Nazareth, a prophet, mighty in deed and word, and everybody saw it. God saw it. The people saw it. We saw it. How the chief priest and the ruler delivered him up to be crucified. They are so disappointed. At this point in the story, their hope has been crucified. Jesus, at this moment to them, amounts to nothing more than another rejected Jewish prophet. I mean, how many times has Israel rejected and mistreated and murdered her prophets? And even if Jesus could do the great works of Elijah, and even if he could do the deeds like the deeds of Moses, he had been rejected and crucified. It was over. Hope was gone. But we were, we were hoping. We were hoping. They're devastated. Look at verse 21. But we were hoping. We were hoping that he was the one to redeem Israel. Behind this image is another image with which we're familiar and Cleopas is familiar and Jesus is familiar. It's the image of the Exodus playing in the background. Yes, he is the second Moses. It's the image of the Exodus and the image of the Passover That's loomed large in the whole passion narrative. These two disciples headed back home are probably Cleopas and I think his wife, Mary, who's mentioned in the Gospel of John. Maybe she's the other disciple on the road to Emmaus. They had been living out the story of the exodus and following this second Moses. God had been present with Jesus and his miracles. God had been present with him and his words. Look at verse 19. He was mighty indeed inward. He didn't just talk the talk. This was finally a Messiah like Moses who could walk the walk. Words and deeds. Just like God had redeemed ancient Israel from the slavery of Egypt. God was finally going to redeem Israel from Roman oppression, occupational army. God, with his second Moses, would purchase their freedom yet again. Israel free and liberated from Rome, free to serve God in peace and holiness. And that's why the crucifixion doesn't fit the narrative. That's why it doesn't make any sense. It wasn't just that their leader was dead and gone. No. That was bad enough, but it was much more than this. Jesus had been the one to redeem Israel. The crucifixion was a final and complete devastation of their hope. But we we, we have been hoping, they said. The cross is where people end up who think they can liberate Israel, but find out in the end they don't have the power to get it done. They had seen would be, could be, should be Messiahs before. They know how this story ends. This one was supposed to be different. He's crucified. And this is what it means. They knew that his crucifixion meant, or at least they thought they knew, that God had not forgiven Israel's sins and the pagans were still in power. They thought they were traveling up a road that would lead to liberation. In the end, it was a cul-de-sac. It was another dead end. And how could they have been so wrong? How could they have been so wrong about their Jesus? They had heard about the miracles. In fact, Cleopas and Mary had seen one or two themselves. His words were so far- powerful, he spoke as if he were speaking for God. No, he spoke as if he were God. I am my Father are one. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. And if you couldn't trust this Messiah to set you free, then there is no hope. There is no other would-be, could-be Messiah to whom they could turn. But we were, we were hoping. And now all this commotion about angels and empty tombs. It was a confusing icing on the upside-down cake of crucifixion, but we were hoping. Now turn over there to Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. We've lost hope before, like these disciples on the road to Emmaus. The psalmist of the Psalter had been there before. Look at Psalm 42. These songs, 42 and 43, should be sung together. They're the same song. As a deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Skip down just a sentence. My tears have been my food day and night. While they were saying to me all day long, where is your God? Look at verse 5, the end. Hope in God for I shall again praise him. Oh God, I'm longing for you and you are absent and my enemies are telling me, where is your God? Your God is a no-show. He didn't show up. But then he says in verse 5, I hope in God. And one day I will praise him again. The psalmist feels like God is absolutely so far away. He's so far away from the presence of the Almighty. Where is your God? Hope in God that I can praise him again. Look at verse 9. I will say to God, my rock, why? Oh God, why have you forgotten me? They say, verse 10, all day long, your God's a no-show. Where is your God? And look at verse 11. He says it again, hope in God. For I shall yet praise him. Psalm 43 continues the song. He asks God, why have you rejected me? Verse 2. He's in despair, verse 5. And then in verse 5, he says it again. Hope in God, for I shall praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. The psalmist says, God doesn't seem like he's here right now. He seems gone. My enemies are drawing my attention to the fact that my God's a no-show. And yet I will hope in God. And I will praise him again. But we were hoping. Back to Luke 24, verse 22. Now they go on in verse 22. To tell tell how the women had come to the tomb and reported the body's not there. And they were talking something about angels. And the disciples checked it out. And they didn't see Jesus. And so it seemed like an old wives' tale. And then look at verse 25. Now Jesus speaks. Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Don't you believe what the prophets have said about the Messiah? Have you missed it? Look at verse 26. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then, after crucifixion, to enter the glory of God? You see, they've been hoping in the wrong direction. They thought that God would redeem Israel from suffering. And that's not God's plan. God was to redeem Israel through suffering. Through the suffering of the Messiah who was to carry the story of Israel On his back. The Messiah who becomes Israel's representative, God was not going to save them from suffering. Rather, God saved them through suffering, suffering of his son. Look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. Now, don't think for a moment that Jesus used a little proof text here and there and tried to weave himself into the Torah or the prophets or the writings. That's not the way it is at all. Can you imagine having a two-hour walk with Jesus when he rereads the Old Testament to you in such a way that makes perfect sense that he is the crucified, resurrected Messiah? Don't you know what Isaiah said? Think about the words of Jeremiah and what about Hosea. And don't you see, this is a story all along. And the Messiah was not to be the victor you suppose, at least not like you suppose. He was to be crucified. And yes, he was going to have a throne, but his throne was a cross. And yes, he was going to initiate a new world and a new kingdom, and his kingdom is not of this world. And he retold the whole story. He told them about God's people, including everybody now, the church. He told the story in such a way that they could discover And the execution of this rabbi, it was not the disproof of his being the Messiah, but rather the confirmation and the climax of his being the Messiah. Suppose for a moment, that someone could retell you the story in such a way that the cross was not an example of the triumph of paganism over God, but actually God's means of defeating evil once and for all, and God setting us free from sin and death. It is the moment that our sins are forgiven, this crucifixion, and the kingdom of God has now begun, and it will come to all of its fullness. And as they're listening, to this story told by this stranger who seems to not know anything that's going on, but now he seems like he knows everything that's going on. The text says their hearts are strangely warmed. The God who had covered their eyes is beginning to open their eyes and to warm their unfolding before these two disciples is the absolute truth of the gospel, the truth of God, the truth that the cross was God's plan and God's way all along to save his people. And there would be a new creation. It's called Resurrection. Can you imagine having those two hours to walk, those seven-mile walk with Jesus and him read the Old Testament to you in that way? Can you imagine thinking, man, i got to go home and write this down right now? They arrive to Emmaus some two hours later. And Jesus acts, well, i got to go a little further. He acts like he can't really stop and stay. He's got somewhere else to go. And they say, my friend, it's getting too late. You can go no further. You must stay with us. And they serve a meal. But it's the strangest role reversal. The guest becomes the host. Jesus becomes the one to serve the bread. It's a role reversal. Just like in the upper room where Jesus serves the bread, the verbiage is exactly the same. Look at verse 30. And it came about when he reclined at the table. He took the bread and he blessed it. And he broke it and he gave it to them. It's the same verbiage of the Greek copy of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Let's listen to it. He takes the bread. He gave thanks. He broke the bread. He gave the bread same language. And in the breaking of the bread, verse 31, notice, their eyes are open. God, who has shut their eyes, now God opens their eyes in the breaking of the bread. Verse 31, when Jesus breaks the bread, their eyes are open. Now I want you to think back to another meal. I want you to think all the way back to Genesis. Maybe Jesus talked about this when he was on the road to Emmaus. I want you to think to another meal. There's a fruit. It's a forbidden fruit. And she takes and she gives and he eats and she eats and their eyes are open. It's the same language in the Greek Septuagint as it is here. The opening of their eyes. Their eyes were open and they knew they were naked and sin enters the world. It was a tale of that first meal, and it had been told over and over and over again, the forbidden fruit and the, well, taking the fruit and giving it and eating it, and eyes open, and now in this meal, eyes are opened too. What we have is a new Adam and a new meal, the new meal of the new creation. He takes, he blesses, he breaks and he gives, and their eyes were opened. The curse of Genesis is gone in the breaking of this bread. In verse 32, they say, Hey, you know, the whole time he was talking to us, they realized right then he's Jesus, and then Jesus disappears. I thought when he was telling us that story, my heart was doing things it's never done before. Cleopas says to Mary, and Mary says, I couldn't believe it. I was about to jump out of my skin. We should have known. Didn't you have that feeling on the road? They say to each other. Oddly enough, though, they told Jesus it was way too late to travel. When you find out the dead are alive and the Messiah is king, they run back to Jerusalem. They make the seven-mile journey back right then that night. And when they get there, the disciples say to them, hey, you need to know uh, Jesus is alive. And he appeared appeared to Simon. And they say, man, we got a story too. You're not going to believe it. And they say, in the breaking of the bread, we saw the Messiah, verse 35 is still recognized today in the breaking of the bread, his broken body, his blood shed, and again, our hearts are strangely warmed. Maybe you're like those disciples on the road to Emmaus. The narrative, your story has not finished the way you want it to finish, and you join them in saying, but we were hoping. remind you today that Advent is about hope, and I want you to hear the words of the psalmist who says, they say, my God didn't show up, and you seem so far away, and God, why have you forgotten me? But hope, says the psalmist, I will praise him yet again. Has there ever been a time in our world when we need the hope of the Bethlehem baby that we need him right now? The wars and rumors of wars have become a reality, and we have a broken world, and we're longing for the Messiah to arrive this year again, and we can be a people of hope. But we were hoping, and then our eyes were opened. May the arrival of the Bethlehem baby Open your eyes to the reality of the Christ. Oh God, we come to you today and we're hoping again. Christmas causes your people to be a people of hope. And where there's despair, there is hope. And where there's brokenness, it's made whole. Oh God, give us the hope of the Christ child.